Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Pactum. I'm Mike Grimes here with Pat Abendroth. Hey, Mike, how's it going today? It's going great. Awesome. Glad to be with you. Glad to be recording. Also glad that we have listeners who are giving us great responses, great feedback. Yeah. So if you are part of the Pactumverse, as we like to call you, right. uh, if you're part of the Pactumverse, thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us join you in your car, through your earbuds, headphones, computer, however it is. We're thankful to have an influence in your life, hopefully for the glory of Christ. Yeah, thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners. We have a special episode today with a special guest. And of course we have to say that. If we had a guest, are we going to say he's not? special. Yeah, we have so, a very normal guest today. Yeah, how would that be? We have a very <laughs> special guest in studio. He's with us to discuss matters relating to the doctrine of God, so it couldn't be more important than that. He is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine. He is the host of the Credo Podcast. I am a fanboy yep. of Credo Podcast. I like to listen to it when I'm riding my bicycle or doing some chores around the house, uh, multitasking. So thankful for that. Yeah. He also has written a, a number of books. My favorite book that our guest has written is Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. Yeah, Mike, book. I know you have that book, but have you read it? Not all of it. As, oh, okay. As per usual, as you know, the resident music wannabe theologian type guy, I intended to finish it, and I got going, and then he writes another book. So you intend to finish that one, and you get going, and then there's another book. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Stop making excuses. All right. So he's married, has four children, and he is a Chiefs fan. Chiefs fan. So talk talk to me, Mike. My wife is a huge Chiefs fan. And so I have now been to several, because we have several listeners, as (laughs) of course we do, Chiefs games, and they are a time. Man, they're fun. My biggest, most best, awesome memory of a Chiefs game, we were there when. Tom Brady, when he played for the New England Patriots, got benched because they were beating him so bad. And that was the same night they set the Guinness Book of World Records for loudest stadium. Absolutely amazing. 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 Well, that's a long way for us to introduce. And you kind of hijacked the introduction. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You asked. I told you. Okay. Fair enough. Our special Chiefs fan guest today, theologian, is none other than Matthew Barrett. Hi, Matthew. And welcome to the Pactum. You know, it's great to be able to join both of you, especially if you want to talk Chiefs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How many games have you been to since moving to Kansas City? You know what? I, I, I hate to admit this, but I've only been to one. Oh. And uh, well, I wasn't. Sundays, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that game in particular because after the Super Bowl last year, oh, uh, I, yeah. I, I completely forgot about that game. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to know that there was a point in time in which we just humiliated uh, Tom Brady. Yes. you know, hey. <laughs> And it, can, it will happen again to all the Chiefs fans out there. Oh, right. how about that? Yeah, little, there... little prediction, even though this season is not starting so well. Oh, it's been bad. bad oh, bad. so bad. So, so since bad. Omaha doesn't have a professional team other than the Cornhuskers, uh, <laughs> lots and lots of Chiefs fans in Omaha. So yeah. Omaha people like to claim the Kansas City Chiefs. So. Yeah. Well, we are glad you're with us. We're glad that you are going to give us some insights into some theological matters. Maybe one more lighthearted thing since you're from Southern California, right? Yeah. So if you were to order today at In-N-Out Burger, what would you oh, order? Oh, my goodness. Of course, double-double. Um, I do not – I think it's sinful 
to what's it called animal style without the bun right right which my wife does every time and i just think what's the point of coming to in and out burger if you're not going to get the whole package there is that so yep. um no i i have major sanctification issues whenever i'm back in california because eating the in and out it just seems like we should do this every day absolutely yeah <laughs> and you know what changed my life is we lived in southern california for a while but someone told me to order um Grilled onions on the. Oh, you have to get the grilled onions. Oh, they are very good. Yes, delicious. I uh, when when I was just a boy, uh, my my mom used to take me to In and Out, and she introduced me to the grilled onions. Oh, now how about double cooked fries or fries well done? Have you ever tried that? You know, I actually like the fries there, but um, sadly, my my wife Elizabeth can't stand them. And um, so I, I end up eating be hers as well. Special prayers. <laughs> we need to have a special anointing service. Later yeah, for Elizabeth. yeah, I know. Seriously. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big In and Out fan. Um, I I need to get one of these days, like an In and Out T-shirt, and just start wearing it to class when I teach. There you go. <laughs> I think the closest one might be is it Dallas yeah, or maybe it Colorado? Yeah. It is. They just put one in in um, in Denver, I think. Okay. They just put one in Denver because my I have a friend there. Uh, Gary Stewart, and he called me and said, uh, guess where we are? Ooh, said, there you go. I, I hate you. <laughs> but they just got one. Uh, but before then, from Kansas City, yeah, I think it was it was probably Dallas because we drove to Texas, and that was really one of the big reasons, one of the big things we were waiting for. <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. I always make my kids get something that's not on the menu, so that's kind of yeah. fun. It's kind of a contest. Yeah. That's fun. Strangely enough, when my wife and I lived in Los Angeles, we didn't go that often, but now you yeah. know it's like a thing a because thing. we don't have that's it. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. So we do like to talk about food on the Pactum. We oh, like yeah. to talk about coffee on the Pactum. Yeah. Coffee drinker, not a coffee drinker. Did, you know what? Oh, I, oh wait. I, just I, don't say kombucha because that's what John Fesco <laughs> yes, said. Yeah. So and we made fun of him. Yeah, you should. You should make fun of him. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, I am not a coffee drinker. And oh, I have man. tried. I have tried. Now, I do have students. And, and if you're in Kansas City, uh, especially at Midwestern Seminary, there are some serious coffee drinkers. And oh. they just tell me, well, you just haven't had the right coffee. Right. Yeah. right. I don't know. I, you, you do the eye roll. I'm, I'm not convinced yet. I don't know. I like the smell of it. Fair enough. But hmm. I... I don't know. You need a pumpkin spice latte. That's what you need. Maybe. No. Maybe. <laughs> then he'd have to turn in his man card. None of you that. you got to put enough into the coffee so it doesn't taste like coffee. There is that. Well, this is a theological podcast, although the last episode or two episodes ago, we didn't talk about the Bible. No, we didn't. And we got some grief for that. Yeah. But anyway, Matthew, we want to talk to you about Trinity Drift. And the reason we want to talk about Trinity Drift is because I think that is a label that you've coined. Uh, and I think you've talked about it in your book, at least. You talk yeah. about Trinity Drift. Um, I'm holding here in my hot little hand, Simply Trinity, the unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're curious as to what what has caused this move away from Nicaea, from Trinitarian Orthodoxy? What's caused this? And then, le- then let's talk about some of the cures. Yeah. Well, so many things have caused it, really. If you go back to the 20th century, you have the rise of so many modern theologians. And there's a bit of irony because, uh, goodness, from Jurgen Moltmann to Karl Barth, they're basically saying, hey, uh, we've we've got a Trinitarian renaissance on our hands. That's what they were saying. That's what they're saying. And and, uh, they... 
they're saying we, we've, we're recovering the Trinity. Now, this is a long story. You've got to read the book to find out why they're saying that. It uh, has a lot to do with their reaction to Protestant liberalism and what liberalism was doing in terms of disregarding the Trinity. The Orthodox Trinity is something speculative and, and, uh, and totally irrelevant to uh, society. Got it. But long story short, um, they're, they're saying there's this re- we have a renaissance of the Trinity. But when you look at the uh, – the, the irony is this. Uh, you, know, you have um, theologians like uh, Stephen Holmes, uh, historians like uh, Lewis Ayers, who you know, now that time has passed have looked back and said, well, okay, renaissance, but uh, what kind – of Trinity exactly are you recovering? Okay, okay, <laughs> and that's yeah, right. We always have to ask that question, and uh, I think that what we've discovered now is that well, in all of the excitement for the recovery of the Trinity, it, it wasn't entirely, and sometimes not at all, the Orthodox uh, Nicene doctrine of the Trinity that our fathers thought was was so faithful to Scripture. Okay, uh, rather um, to one degree or another. Uh, Theologians were advocating for a social doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. Now, maybe, Matthew, before you go, sorry to interrupt, before you go there, uh, we we have all kinds of listeners brand yeah. new to the Christian faith, those who are more mature. When you say Orthodox, what do you mean? And when you say yeah. Nicene, what do you mean? Yeah. So when we say the word Nicene, we're referring to the Nicene Creed. Okay. So in the fourth century, a huge controversy erupted uh, over the doctrine of the Trinity, and you have, I mean, I, I think most Christians have probably at some point heard a name like Athanasius. Maybe, maybe not. I hope so. Uh, but uh, individuals like Athanasius or uh, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, as they were called, they're right at the center of this controversy. Okay. Athanasius versus Arius? Well, it's not quite that clean cut. Okay. Uh, Athanasius okay. is, was pretty young at the time um, when Nicaea took place. And really, he... Uh, though he was there, uh, he wasn't uh, one of the main figures. Okay. Uh, he, after Nicaea, though, he plays a significant role in trying to uh, clarify and unpack and really define uh, what the Nicene Creed is trying to accomplish. Okay. He's not alone, though. Um, there are many others like Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, and, and so many others. Uh, who are who are also laboring um, to defend the orthodox understanding of the Trinity? What do they mean by that? Well, um, in the fourth century, Arianism uh, essentially argued that well, the unity between the Father and Son is not a unity of being; uh, it's merely a unity of will or wills. Okay, it's functional, um, and so when. Uh, they looked at someone like Alexander, for example, when he uh, argued, like many before him, for what's called the eternal generation of the Son, uh, that the Son is begotten. So here's you know John's language in John's Gospel, begotten from the Father, from the Father's essence, but from all eternity. Uh, Arius uh, did not have a positive reaction. In fact, he was he was quite furious. Okay. Um, and he argued instead that, uh, well, uh, God can only be unbegotten. And therefore, when we talk about the Son, uh, the Son, well, there, there must have been a time when the Son was not. Okay, so we're getting at matters related to the Trinity yes. and related to the eternality of the Son in particular. That's right. right? That's exactly right. 
And so uh, then Arius went on to say that, well, the sun may be the greatest, the, the, the most supreme in the created uh, realm, but nonetheless, uh, he is not eternally, uh, eternally begotten. Okay. So uh, this, for, for those who uh, responded to Arius, this actually, they said, this, this actually redefines the Trinity entirely. Uh, it's no longer a unity of essence. Uh, the, the Son is no longer eternally begotten from the Father's essence. Uh, now uh, the Son is actually a product of the Father's will, merely an effect of the Father's will that comes into existence. So if there's a unity, it's merely a unity uh, of will and in plan, etc. Got it. it. It cannot be that stronger sense of unity or what we might call uh divine simplicity. Okay, so in thinking of this, when you say orthodox, you mean as in biblical, legitimate, yeah. So when we use, standard... Yeah, we're not referring to like Eastern orthodoxy as we know it today. Okay. Um, uh, we're using orthodox in a different way. We're referring uh, to the way that the Trinity is um, taught in the scriptures, and then the way that the church fathers in particular... Um, in the fourth century, labored to define the Trinity and even use extra biblical words. Because remember, um, this is a debate that's occurring within the church. It's not. Okay. It's not like today, where it's like, okay, those are individuals outside the church; mm. uh, those are heretics. We're in the church. It, what, no, that wasn't the case. So um, this is pre-Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right? Uh, who, much pre. <laughs> who, who would be kind of Arian, right? Much, much before. Yeah, yeah, far, far before Jehovah Witnesses. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, on that note, uh, they are uh, – remember, the, the Arians are quoting Scripture. Okay. Uh, they are leaders in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to their understanding of Christ and, and God, they are even uh, singing songs that subordinate the Son. I mean, this. in other words, what I'm trying to get at here is that this was um, extremely uh, – practical in terms of the everyday life and existence and and even survival. That was the big worry, the survival of Christianity as they knew it. Okay. If you were to go to the marketplace and go for a loaf of bread, um, you might have been asked uh, by the baker, so so what do you think? Do you think uh, there there was a time when the sun was not? Okay. I, I know that's a bit odd because you don't go to the marketplace and you you probably no one asks you about Trinitarianism as you're you know Right. But they were <laughs> but they were marketing this, right? They had their jingles. They yes, and um, and and so uh, long story short, um, you know, we we sort of say orthodoxy today. At the time, though, it wasn't that clear cut. At the time, uh, there was a battle taking place as to who uh, would actually be orthodox, and uh, this really put uh, well a lot was at stake. Sure, because at that point, the fathers had to say, we need to come together um, in order to not only define the Trinity properly. Uh, but actually articulate it in a way that safeguards us from from what they believed was was truly heresy and and had to show that it was okay so Matthew, maybe if you could in a simple sentence <laughs> give us a definition of the Trinity yeah um just and again, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat even though you're the expert <laughs> um, just in real simple terms, yeah. what would be an orthodox statement of the doctrine of the Trinity and I'm th- just thinking in terms of one God eternally existing that kind of thing yeah. but just to help people understand what really what we're talking about okay well 
uh, quite a task, but uh, I'll, I'll try. I'll try to do my best here. We're going to distribute this to all of your students. <laughs> um, first things first, when we talk about the Trinity, we have to understand uh, this is the one undivided God we, we are talking about. Uh, Who's always been God. Oh, sorry. I, that's need, right. I need to be that's quiet. <laughs> I can't help myself. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll be a good boy and sit here. Um, in other words, uh, we are talking, yes, about Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, but they are one. And so the language that was used, and it becomes so important, is uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence. Um, this is where uh, simplicity is really important. We don't mean God's elementary or basic or easy to understand. Uh, we mean he's without parts. Uh, he's undivided. Uh, he, he doesn't just possess astri- attributes. His essence is his attributes and so on. And so when we come to the Trinity, it's not as if the Father is a part of God and, and the Son, oh, he must be a different or, or a lesser part of God. Or and, and then who knows by the time you get the Spirit. No, these aren't parts of God. God is without parts. Rather, um, these these persons, well, we could go back to the words of Jesus, right? When Jesus says in John's gospel, um, and he so infuriates, right, the religious leaders when he says this, that he is one with the Father. Mm-hmm. He, I don't think he means there, hey, the Father and I, uh, we we checked in with each other and we figured out how to accomplish this thing called salvation. Right. Uh, he means something far more. He he means, no, I am I am one with the Father. And this is going to come out in all kinds of ways in the Gospels when Jesus uh, starts to communicate uh, in, in John 5, for example, when he starts to, to say, talk about creation because he's doing a, a miracle on the Sabbath and says, even as the Father is working until now, so am I. Nice. Uh, he is identifying uh-huh. himself with the Creator and, and therefore giving himself full license and justification for what he's doing on the Sabbath. Well, all And again, they, they understand it enough to want to kill him. <laughs> right, right. Uh, they understand you are actually claiming identity with Yahweh. Um, well, this when we describe simplicity, this is what we're after. And we've the fathers end up developing language in order to preserve and safeguard this biblical belief. Um, they'll start saying things like, well... Uh, the essence, uh, it subsists in all three persons. It wholly subsists, you know, W-H-O-L-L-Y. That, why are they using language like this? Well, they're, they're trying to be very, very careful that they don't um, abandon or, or compromise the equality of any one person with the other. Or even when, and you see this uh, as they start to articulate um, the Nicene Creed and, and all the aftermath, they start to say things like, when we refer to the Son and say He is begotten from the Father, He is eternally begotten from the Father. Yes, that distinguishes the Son as Son. That's what it means for a Son to be Son. Okay. And yet at the same time, it also uh, communicates and safeguards the equality of the Son because He's begotten from the Father's essence. Right. right. So, so this is key okay. uh, because then that means, okay, if they're one in this way, well, then when we describe their distinction— um, what it means for them to be three persons. Uh, well, we say the Father is is unbegotten from eternity, uh, and as Father, well, He has begotten His Son. That's what it means for a Father to be Father and Son to be Son. But the Son is begotten. It's not like, like us. He's begotten eternally from the Father. And the Spirit, when we get to the Spirit, we say, well, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is 
spirated from the Father and the Son. And yet at the same time, uh, and here I'm going to throw in uh, some some more uh, you know older language for a minute. At the same time, they're saying, well, these these modes of subsistence that that we just described, well, the essence has these three modes of subsistence. In other words, they're trying to really, really make sure. Okay, yes, we can talk about what distinguishes them, but but otherwise, they have all things in common. It's it's not as if uh, you know you can look at one person and say. Okay, he's begotten, but he's also inferior, or he's also subordinate. They they would that was the whole point. Is okay. they're trying to distinguish the son and son, but at the same time, uh, make sure you understand. Well, this son, he is he is a subsistence of the same undivided, indivisible, simple divine essence as the Father. And there are no good analogies, so they're using these <laughs> special theological words, right? Like begotten. Like spirated, and many to of these preserve these things, right? Yeah, I mean, many of these things. I mean, we're obviously introducing theological language here, but notice why we're doing so. I mean, if you go back to the fourth century, everybody's quoting scripture. Um, they the, didn't. The, the heretic the friends and the foes are quoting scripture. Yeah, I mean, we often think of them as heretics, but um, they didn't think of themselves that way. And they said, "We're just believing the Bible. We're just we're just saying what the Bible says." Arius was adamant about that, right? Uh, which is a reminder that how important theological language is. Um, you're both quoting the Bible. Well, at some point, in order to clarify and actually get at the real meaning of the Bible, you need to use words. You got to use, and, and anyone who's had a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim, a conversation with any, you know this, right? Uh, they love to quote the Bible. Uh, they, they might be actually more familiar with it than some Christians I know. Right, right. But uh, in order to do that, um, to even uh, refutes what they're saying or their wrong understanding of Christ or the Trinity or whatever it is. You have to use other words to get at the real meaning of the scriptures. So the fathers are are very much echoing the biblical ideas when they say in the Nicene Creed uh, that the Son is true God of true God, begotten, not made. Really important clarification there. Ari- the Arians couldn't say that. And then they go on to say light from light. That's, scripture, that, that's scriptural language there. Right. It comes from the Psalms. You also see uh, this language come up in the New Testament with radiance, the radiance of, of the glory of God. They are, they are simply echoing the biblical language, but then using important theological words like essence um, in order to uh, to say, of course, you know, they're, they're using Greek, for example, to say, well, the son is of the same usia. He, he is homo usias, with the Father. He's of the same nature. Not homoi, but homo. That's right. right. So, I mean, one letter could make all the difference in the world. It's a reminder to us today that um, we can't... It, it, I know that it sounds a bit like a trump card to just say, well, we, I just we, believe hey, the we Bible. Can't, we yeah. can't say you trump. Can't say that. Sorry. Oh, okay. Ace card. Ace card. <laughs> We're going to have to edit this episode. <laughs> um you know, oftentimes it's, it's we in our conversations we we sort of use an ace card of the deck uh, to say, "Well, I we just believe the Bible." We can't say privilege. We can't say trump card. Uh, I'm not sure what it's else. But to, yeah, to anyway, we don't want to trigger anybody. Yeah, We're we very- we. <laughs> well, I'm going to trigger this for a minute. Um, we we oftentimes talk that way. Well, uh, that you know that that sometimes is used as. Uh, you know, something quite clever and, and a bit to shut down the conversation and, and just win it. But 
that that actually doesn't work, right? Uh, we we have to be careful here that we're not uh, biblic. We're, we want to be biblical, but we're not biblicists. There's a difference between sola scriptura and uh, nuda or solo scriptura. Yep, episode yeah. actually episode one episode on number pactum, one on the pactum, how about is that? Biblicism. <laughs> yep, yep. Because we both kind of grew up theologically thinking that biblicism was the, was the right answer. It is biblical, right? Only to find out that oftentimes it's the bad guys. Every heretic has their Bible verse. There you go. You've got a great uh, quote in your book, Simply Trinity. Heretics use the Bible to subordinate the Son. So they're actually the biblicists in that sense. The church fathers used extra biblical words to protect the Trinity of the Bible. And so I thought that was right on the mark and kind of fits what we've been talking about when we talk about biblicism and the dangers of biblicism. Yep. Maybe what we can do now is transition a little bit. And by the way, I don't think you gave us a definition of the Trinity in one, one sentence. So, but you, you're the you're the scholar. So we're just we're just here to throw softballs your way. Um, but we appreciate your answer. Um, let's move on. Let's move on a little bit and talk about why we would want to learn from people like Augustine. Why would why we would want to learn from yeah. people like Thomas Aquinas as it would relate to these kinds of things. Well, it really goes back to how we started the conversation. And that's one of the the claims I make in my book is we are experiencing Trinity drift, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the 20th century, uh, we have either abandoned or redefined so much of what we just said. Uh, In other words, concepts like eternal generation by evangelicals was just rejected. Okay. Now it's the conversation is beginning and more accepting it. But there was a time, once upon a time, uh, when it was just laughed out of the building and, and, and dismissed. Same thing with simplicity. And the list goes on from there. And not just in theological We're not, leftist liberal no, circles. No, You mean evangelical circles. Absolutely, mm. evangelicals. And what was put in its place? Well, uh, more or less a social understanding of the Trinity. Yeah. One that said, well, the Trinity is just more like a society. And persons are more like... Uh, Persons like we're persons. They have their their own their their own individuals with their own wills, their own centers of consciousness. And well, when, once you go that route, and, and from there, the the twentieth century has, has really borne this out. Uh, well, this social definition of the Trinity, when you redefine it in this way, um, not not only does it start, I think, to start move you inch you a bit closer to you know certain dangers like tritheism, but it also then. Um, and, and time and time again, this has been done. It just be, it becomes all too convenient to use the Trinity as your social program. Okay. Politics, uh, church government, gender debates, on and on and on. Okay. Uh, because now that the Trinity is a society, um, it's, it can be the po- paradigm, the prototype for our society. Okay. So, so getting to where the kind of rubber meets the road, um, a, a specific example, I pulled a book from my bookshelf that I read during seminary. Uh, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so we have a whole ministry that launches, and we have the eternal submission of the Son, I think, yeah. and therefore we have all women submitting to all men kind of thing. Do you want to go there? Do you not want to go yeah, there? Yeah, no, I, we, can, we, can, we can. Hey, I'm, I'm your uh, guest, so you, you tell me. But um... Okay, well, when you were speaking today, I thought Matthew <laughs> Barrett is so... He's a scholar and a gentleman. He's got this nice smile on his face. <laughs> and I thought, he's a smiling assassin. <laughs> and, and I meant that in all the best senses, because I think you are a gentleman and a scholar. But I like it that you're not afraid to say, hey, this is a problem. Yeah. And we need to address yeah. it head on. Yes. And it actually is why your writing is quite helpful. Yes. Yeah. So, Well, thank you. No, it, um, 
you know, I was actually just talking to someone about this at the conference because it is painful to talk about because many of these these people are uh, people that we've respected and and maybe even called friends and and whatnot, and so that makes it all the more painful. But at the same time, uh, we have to be really careful, right? We don't let politics get in the way of of the truth and and really uh as, as jesus pointed out so much right um the truth is actually what will unite us in the end and Amen. and we mm-hmm. shouldn't be afraid i mean um we shouldn't be afraid to say you know what uh maybe we have drifted and maybe we have gotten something wrong okay uh let's come back let's 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 come back and reevaluate this and rather than digging our heels and let's reevaluate this and see okay how can we actually return to a more biblical and orthodox understanding of the trinity i think there's great humility in doing that but all that said yeah i mean you're onto something there um evangelicals or you know last several decades have have gone this route by redefining the trinity in uh societal terms um they and and by then introducing a type of um, functional hierarchy within the Trinity, we're not talking about the incarnation. I mean, we're talking about God is is God. The in, apart from the world, apart from salvation, um, this is this type of functional hierarchy where the Father is a greater glory, a, a, a greater authority, a greater supremacy, and the Son is lesser. lesser. In His very essence, so well. That that's where they would say, well, no, He's still equal in essence, but He's He's subordinate in role. Um, this this okay, type okay. of move, though, uh, number one, uh, even though they're, they're saying it's biblical and, and orthodox and all that, it is extremely novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and and more to the point, it's actually incredibly indebted to to modern theology in the 20th century, whether they realize it or not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of irony at this point, right? Because uh, if you go back uh, to last century and you look at um, – you know, one of the most influential figures, you know, Moltmann. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is exactly what he does. Moltmann uh, redefines the Trinity. He's very honest about it, too. He's celebrating it as a type of society. Hmm. Except for him, he doesn't want hierarchy. That He, he actually hates that. He, he wants equality. But then from there, he, makes, he, he goes directly to politics and says, well, now we've got our paradigm. The Trinity is our paradigm for socialism okay. in politics. Well, that's just one example. There are just... Dozens and dozens of examples of this. The irony about uh, EFS or ESS, whichever label you want to use, is I don't know that they uh, they realize they're actually doing something quite similar, if not the same thing, just with a different agenda. Okay. okay. So they're redefining the Trinity, and they might even use orthodox language, which which makes it all the more frustrating. They're, they're, they're actually redefining the Trinity more in terms of a society, but they're inserting a hierarchy in there, and then they're going to they're going to society itself and saying, well, now we have the paradigm. Okay. Uh, this is the ace card, you know, in the uh-huh, deck. We uh-huh. have the paradigm then, uh, like you said, for a, a woman who's subordinate, but nonetheless equal in essence with her husband and the husband who's, who's a greater authority. Right. So they make that, that one-to-one move. Okay. Now, yeah, I mean, I could definitely talk a lot more about that, but... So can you help us a little bit as far as understanding the son does humble himself, Right. And he comes to do the Father's will. That sounds like submission. And so it, help us distinguish yeah. between what's good and biblical and orthodox and yeah. what's not. Great question. Great question. And this really gets at uh, the hinge or the turning point or okay. really the, the, the nerve <laughs> underneath the skin. Uh, because if you, if you ask, well, what, is, what exactly has gone wrong? Why are we experiencing this trinity drift even though we thought we were being so biblical mm-hmm. i think what's gone wrong is <clears throat> in the the last century there's been a, a major conflation 
that has taken place uh, between who God is in and of himself, apart from the world, apart from creation, providence, salvation, and then God towards the world in terms of what we call the economy. Okay. So, in, in you know, you go back to the old days, you know, the Puritans talked this way as well. They used to just call this theology in terms of God as God in and of himself. Okay. And then the economy, the economy of salvation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get into the 20th century, you meet uh, a very influential individual named Karl Rahner. And Karl blows this wide open. And he says, no, 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 no. Uh, he, he's actually um, – him and others are, are quite critical of, of some of the uh, traditional historical ways of talking about the Trinity. And he says, no, the um, the imminent Trinity, so that would be God in and of himself. The imminent tr- Trinity just is the economic Trinity, and the economic is the imminent. In other words, what he's done – there's debate as to how to interpret him, but but those who come after him really go in this direction. What he's done is he's, he's, he's closed that gap entirely or or at least to a radical degree. I call this conflation in my book. Okay. Now, what does this have to do? You know, I, I, I am going to answer your question, believe it or not. <laughs> well, um, I think we as evangelicals are in danger of this. Um, I see this even at a practical level. I mean, on the one hand, we love to talk about the gospel and amen to that, right? We want to be right. gospel-centered. Right. We want to be gospel this, gospel that. But we have to also be careful, right? Because we we could assume, we could make you know a wrong assumption and think, oh, just, just all that we need to know, anything and everything. Well, that we need to know about God or who He is. That's just that's just the gospel. Well, notice what we've done at that point. We've we've taken the eternal, infinite, incomprehensible God, and uh, we've we've basically shrunk Him down to size to our experience of Him, perhaps, or just whatever's occurring um, by virtue of the incarnation. Okay, that's a very dangerous move. I mean, uh, I think a better uh, maneuver is to maybe think through chapter one of John's gospel. Uh, John is going to be very eager. To get to the gospel. Right. Uh, verse 14 and 15, right? He's going to talk about the son and, and, and what he's come to do. But before he gets there, he wants to talk metaphysics. He wants to say, who is this this son? He's the word. Uh, he was. He's the word who was with God. He's the word who was God. Well, uh, you know, for all to all those biblicists out there, well, this is very uncomfortable all of a sudden because now what is John just is this just speculation? No, John actually wants to talk about who God is apart from you, whether or not you exist, whether or not he saves you, whether or not he even creates this world. The Trinity is Trinity. Well, we have to make sure we preserve that and not conflate that then okay. with everything that's going to happen in history. So this is where the problem is with, I think, EFS is we that conflation has occurred okay. so that we just look, say, at something that happens in the economy Okay. Maybe even specifically in the incarnation uh, or or the humanity of Christ, and we start projecting. Okay, Professor um, Barrett, I, I'm going to raise my hand. I yeah, have a, I have a question. <laughs> so, are you comfortable? And can we talk about that that John one stuff regarding stuff? <laughs> right? Can we talk? Is it okay to sit, to use the categories ontological and economic? Or not? Yeah, sometimes those categories are used. the The trouble is, you know, by 2021, there's all kinds of baggage now, okay. especially on the heels of a movement like EFS, in which they have said, well, something can be ontological and something can be functional. Um, I that's created lots of problems. Okay, um, that's why I asked. Yeah, and I didn't declare. Yeah, um, but but I think I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean. Uh, but yeah, like at the beginning of John's gospel, he's talking about 
um, if you want to use the word ontological, he's he's talking about who God is apart from the world. Um, and notice where the emphasis is. It's mm-hmm. on equality. Okay. In every every good, way. Good, good. That's super in helpful. essence, in in they they share the same essence, the same will. Yeah, the this same is worth power, the price of the podcast. Same yeah. glory. <laughs> right? This is good. Seriously. Um now that said, okay, well, why is it then that when we get to the incarnation, for example, we start to like you mentioned, what is Jesus doing exactly? Why why is it that uh, should, should we look at this? You know, if you want to call it submission or, or obedience, why what, should we look at that and think, well, that even apart from world, that that just must be what it means to be son, as if whether or not the the creation ever exists, to be son is just to be subordinate, right? And to be the father is just to be greater in in, in glory or authority. I don't think that's what's going on. I, I think actually when you look at like Philippians 2 and certainly the book of Hebrews, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. actually understand a contrast. Although he was in the form of God, right, uh, he humbled himself. And uh, he he's incarnate and he learns obedience. Um, he humbles himself even to the point of death. Notice what's happening. There's a contrast there. Just, and it's meant to be scandalous. Okay. It's meant to shock you to say, Hold on, are you saying that the eternal, the only begotten Son of God would humble himself this low to, to the point where where he's actually going uh he, he's actually going to die on a cross? Yes. Yeah, that's what and it's it's so scandalous because we know, we know, well, of course this is not the, something the son just does as son apart from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh this is something he's doing. For me, I'm the one who failed to obey the law. Now he comes as the second Adam. Okay. The first Adam failed miserably. He comes as the second Adam, and where the first Adam failed to obey the law, he's actually going to fulfill the law. And he's doing it for you. And is that what we mean, or what you mean when you're talking about economic? Yes. The econ- we sometimes that word economic I know is confusing. We're not talking about you know uh, you know the market and and that sort of right, thing. Right. Right. But uh, we're we're actually using that. It's an older word, and it it really refers to God towards the world and, and what He's doing in creation, providence, and salvation. Um, and and really, of course, that involves us. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. So that's super helpful. Uh, maybe bringing up a, uh, the A word again, Aquinas. Oh boy, um, you're really daring. Well, I want to I want to go back there because it seems to me, from where I sit, it sounds like you're saying things Aquinas would agree with. I hope so. And uh, that right there causes some people to say, well, you know, Matthew Barrett and those like you, you're just following people like Aquinas. And we know Aquinas wasn't a good guy. He's a bad guy because he's Roman Catholic and he doesn't have justification right. (laughs) And therefore, let's discount everything you're saying and let's go back to Biblicism. Yeah. Give me, yeah, give me right. some pushback to that. Yeah. Well, the first thing, and, and, and you're, you're really astute to pick up on this because it is quite a prevalent uh, character and misunderstanding. Oh, I'm on Twitter. Whatnot. And it, 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 <laughs> it may or may not be good for your sanctification no, to be on Twitter. No, yeah, it's probably best to, to stay off and, and spend your time uh, reading Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think the first thing we have to say is uh, usually when people start making that type of objection, um, goodness, there is, they've just butchered history. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And it makes me wonder, have they ever read Aquinas? Okay. And whether mm. they've actually paid attention to the development of history. I mean, we, we, can, we, you know, we throw around a word like, a phrase like Roman Catholic, but um, 
Uh, to be perfectly accurate, uh, we have to remember that uh, Roman Catholicism is is a thing, <laughs> uh, and it's really at Trent. Uh, so we're talking, you know, on the heels of the Reformation here, that we start to see its formality. So Aquinas develop. wasn't around during Trent, right? Yeah, I think you. Could, you know what? Maybe our listeners could just Google it, and they might be okay. surprised just how many centuries—quite uh, a few centuries—come between. But you know, you're exactly right. Um, if we could go back in time, uh, when you when you look at uh, the medieval period, and it—I mean, this is what I find it so comical, right? Goodness, as Christians, do we really want to throw out? Because the bigger issue isn't just Aquinas; it's it's a, a bit of a skepticism towards anything medieval. Um, the first thing I like to point out is um, that when we when we have that approach to history, we're actually not consistent with the reformers. Um, we're far more consistent with the radicals of the 16th century, like Anabaptists. That's right. Okay, um, and. Um, for many of them, their view of history was just that. Uh, the, the church has been lost. Yep. It's all dark ages. It's completely corrupted. Uh, maybe there was a few exceptions, depending on you know which radical you're talking about. But more or less, they they view tradition that way. But thank God we're here. And, uh, you know, we're... Me and the Holy Spirit of my Bible. Yeah. yeah. We're, Unless we're committed, some of the Anabaptists didn't even want the Bible, right? That's right. They, they started elevating the Spirit even above the Bible. Uh, and Luther, this really ir- irritated Luther... Uh, especially in his debate with uh, Karlstad when he said, he's, he's swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. Um, <laughs> Luther. Um, right. But the point is, the point is, the Reformers uh, just detested that. Now, why? Well, when you go back to the 16th century, Rome was accusing them of novelty. Right, right. Rome was saying to them, uh, you're innovators. Uh, you're inventing new doctrines. And uh, one of the, the they weren't exactly uh, going to distinguish between the reformers and the radicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they were confusing the mm-hmm. two. So then a, there's a huge burden on the back of the reformers to say, no, no, actually, uh, you are the innovators, which that didn't actually uh, go over too well. But it seems to be one of the reasons why, like Calvin quotes Augustine again That's right. and again and again and again. That's exactly right. I mean, you read his uh his institutes uh the goodness the church is everywhere it it it's uh he becomes a patristic scholar with each new edition of the institutes all that to say uh the reformers were had a heavy and a very intentional agenda to say okay we're going to show you how actually uh we are in continuity and in line with the church universal there's this great uh, statement in Bruce Gordon's biography of Calvin, where he says, "If you would have said to Calvin, um, Rome is Catholic, he would have he would have just fallen over dead from a heart attack." Fascinating. Uh, Fascinating. And here we're using Catholic with a small c, right? Not not Roman Catholic. Where you, in other words, the point is the reformers thought of themselves as in very much as Augustinians. Well, when you look at the Augustinian heritage, where does it go? Aquinas, T- Thomas Aquinas, yeah, right? Uh, and before him, if you Anselm. Get rid of one, you probably end up needing to get rid of the other, right? Yeah, Anselm comes on the scene uh, as one of the first scholastics, uh, taking he, he he is very serious about f- faith seeking understanding, not the reverse, which you see later with rationalism. And, and in that very uh, biblical spirit, Anselm uh, sees himself very much in the vein of Augustine. Uh, by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, goodness, uh, 
if you, I mean, this would be a great exercise for our readers. Read Aquinas on predestination. He sounds Augustinian to the core. I mean, he sounds like a Calvinist, if I can be anachronistic. Interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's not, just, uh, it's not just predestination. I find it so ironic that evangelicals are so squirmy about Thomas Aquinas. You read him on predestination. You read him on the atonement. He talks about satisfaction, substitution. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. He's talking about the atonement in penal terms. Penal, Fascinating. I mean, mm-hmm. these are just a few examples. We have not even talked about Thomas Aquinas in the Trinity or Thomas Aquinas on biblical and orthodox Christology. These are areas in which he was a gift to the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his summa, he, he is writing this. It's, it's so funny when evangelicals are like, oh, he, you know, he's just speculative. Or The man... If you, all you all you have to do is open page one of his summa, his summary of theology, and he he actually says that's what he's writing against. <laughs> he says that all, there's all oh. these uh, theologians out there who are speculating and playing around. He said I I am going to write this so that uh, students and and those in the church uh, can actually understand theology. So we're going to take a question. I'm going to give an answer, and just in a page or two in great brevity, like Calvin, right? Uh, he is going to, to say, okay, this is, this is Christian orthodoxy. He does this on the Trinity. He does it on Christology. He is giving you, in summary form, he is giving you over a thousand, really a thousand years of Christian orthodoxy. And he's it's, going out of his way to be anything but speculative. Well, and the, what's so hilarious, right, about this type of mindset uh, and I hear it all the time. Uh, it's nothing new. I'm sure you do too. Is the guy was a biblical commentator? Huh. Uh, he wrote commentaries on books of the Bible. Uh, I one of the ones I, I mean, you could look at his his commentary on Matthew. But I love to recommend his three volumes on the Gospel of John. I've heard that before. They yeah. are amazing. You 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 can buy them today. Uh, here you have him uh, laboring rigorous biblical exegesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the man is is very much a biblical exegete. Does he also do philosophy? Yes, and of course, theology as the greatest thinkers of the past did. I think this is. I think R.C. Sproul's right. R.C. Sproul once said, and, and you probably find it. I think it's on Ligonier somewhere. It's a short article. So he was asked, "Who is the greatest theologian of all time?" And he 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 didn't hesitate. He said, Interesting, Thomas Aquinas. Ah. Of, of hmm. duh, good, <laughs> of course. Good. Well, I like to see you get worked up about this kind of thing because I think it's important. I'm going to speculate though, and I'm going to speculate and say if we don't wrap up this episode of the Pactum, <laughs> our spouses are going to be upset because we're supposed to meet them for lunch. <laughs> so, Pactum listeners, I'm going to highly recommend Simply Trinity. The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit by Matthew Barrett. And if you want to learn more about Matthew Barrett, you want to get in touch with him on social media, you can find him on Twitter at Credo Magazine, at Credo Magazine, Instagram, or as the kids say, Mike. The Insta. If you want to find him on Insta, you can find him (laughs) at Credo Magazine and also online, www.credomag.com. Thank you so much, Matthew, for spending some time with us and helping us. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our listeners. You can be in touch with us for future Pactum Response some episodes. You can be emailing us at connect at thepactum.org. You can find us on Twitter at the Pactum, on Insta at the Pactum Theology. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next time on The Pactum. <laughs>